This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. great to be here you know I, I live and work in LA but the uh, show I'm on is uh, set here in New York and uh, you know even though Friends is produced 3,000 miles away I always considered it to be a pretty accurate representation of life in New York so you know imagine my surprise when I came here this week and I heard a lot of New Yorkers saying that they thought uh, some of the stuff we do is a bit of a stretch for instance in the uh, in the opening credits of Friends the six of us dance in a fountain you know, like people do in New York. They uh, dance and laugh and have fun. But I had people telling me here that real New Yorkers don't do that. That people would never drop whatever they're doing to just go dance in a fountain just for fun. Well, you know what? I'm not, the, I'm not quite that cynical. I think New Yorkers do like to have fun. And this morning, I set out to prove that very point. Hi, I was wondering if you might be interested. Matthew Perry. I love Friends. It's my favorite all-time show. Oh, thanks. <laughs> hey, listen, do you want to come dance in a fountain with me? No. Hi, what's your name? <laughs> Any interest at all in uh, getting in that fountain with me and splashing around, doing some dancing? <laughs> okay, listen, I'm going to catch you later in the day then. Excuse me. Would you be kind enough to just go dance with me in that fountain? Uh, hi. Would you like to come dance in a fountain with me? Yeah. Let's go. Let's do it. This is going to be good. Real good. You know what? Uh, this isn't a today thing. I didn't mean today. But uh, why don't you give me a call in L.A. next week? All right. What's your name? David Schwimmer. Okay. You're so close. You're so close. We're practically in the water already. If you just kind of just, if you hopped, maybe you could just hop, you know, you hop. How's a hot dog? All right. I don't suppose there's any chance in any way, in any world, at any time, that you would just go into a fountain with me and dance and just have some kind of fun. Is there? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Well, 
think I proved my point. <clears throat> we have got a great show. Oasis is here. So stick around. We'll be right back. Rest in peace, Matthew Perry. Without you, this podcast would not exist. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Punisher! Control! Hey, before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 421, submission number 874, Second Chance. This is the second show of that title to air on Fox, wholly unrelated to the first show from 1987 that we covered on a previous episode. This show aired from December 25th, 2015 to March 25th, 2016 for 11 episodes. So wait, we can officially say it's from 2015? I will get to that momentarily. But in the meantime, those 11 episodes are five less than the number of episodes in Uncle Croc's Block, The Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, Schooled J.J. Starbuck, the number of aired episodes of Salvage One, and what's the one that we added last week? Don't Tell Me, Don't Tell Me, Don't Tell Me, Misfits of Science, and thanks to friend of the show Josh Henninger, we got two more we can add, Tiger King and Little Bush. So Little Bush had a crock block. Tiger King, Little Bush had a crock block. Misfits of Science had a crock block. Yeah. So we have, I think, at this point, seven, eight shows that ran a crock block. And, and also, please remember, keeping this current with what's going on in the news, the United States has not had a Speaker of the House for an entire crock block. The conversion rate from mooch spans to crock blocks, there are 16 mooch spans in 11 crock blocks. There's a 16 to 11 ratio there. You're welcome, folks. Like I said back in January, we should nominate the Whammy for Speaker of the House. I'd vote for him. I will raise your taxes! Oh, I sound just like Jim Jordan. (laughs) Bye-bye! Damn, Whammy getting controversial there. Didn't know he was a Republican. Oh, he is red. That makes sense. He's red and he takes your money. Just like a Republican. There you go. Give us some theme music. Does this show even have theme music? Probably. We'll create theme music if we have to. Okay. He- I'll go to Chad GPT and say, wait a theme song. No, second no. chance in 2016. Okay. Oh. I'll make your theme music right here. It's about a guy who died, and now he's back to life in another body. It's a second chance. I gotta go back, back to yesterday somehow. I gotta go back. I have to find the theme music to this show. Oh, my God. No, you don't have to find the theme music to this show. That was great what Greg just did. He sort of started with his own creative take on it, and then swerved into Second Chance from 1987. Oh. That was lovely. I that was love better it. than the joke we had planned. 
1815, Mary Shelley traveled through Europe and stopped in Gernsheim, Germany, 11 miles from storied Frankenstein Castle, where two centuries before, a mad scientist allegedly engaged in questionable experiments. Another trip to Geneva, Switzerland, would lead to Gothic and Galvanist themes that would be incorporated in a story that she wrote for a competition to write the best horror story. Her vision of a scientist who created sentient life and was horrified by what he had made has become the legendary novel Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus in 1818. 123 years later, James Whale would create a film adaptation for Universal Studios that would lay the groundwork for what we would regard in pop culture as Frankenstein's monster, a creature created by the various parts of cadavers and brought to life by a bolt of electricity. Fast forward to 2015, where Fox, still forming its fall schedule, has one whole remaining Wednesday at 9 p.m. between half-seasons of the hit series Empire and Leading Out of American Idol, which, by that time, was not the phenomenon that it once was. I couldn't even tell you who won American Idol in 2015. Guess who's going to Wikipedia right now? <laughs> He's going to try and figure out who won American Idol in 2015. Okay, so this would be season 15, the farewell season. This was billed as the farewell season. Oh, the judges for this season were Harry Connick Jr., Jennifer Lopez, and Keith Urban. So who won? Trent Horman was the winner. Who that be? I don't know. Some guy? Some guy. This serves to prove the point that I made a few minutes ago. American Idol, not the phenomenon it once was. Rand Ravitch, who wrote The Astronaut's Wife in 1999 and produced Confessions of a Dangerous Mind in 2002, was finishing work on a future entry, Crisis, for NBC, when he was writing a pilot for a project called Frankenstein. Instead of a gothic European castle, though, the show would take place in Los Angeles with the following pretense. A corrupt 75-year-old sheriff by the name of Jimmy Pritchard is killed defending his son Duval's home from criminals. He's brought back to life in secret by tech firm Looking Glass under billionaire twins Otto and Mary Goodwin in the body of a 35-year-old with superhuman strength. A blend of science fiction and crime procedural, Fox bought the series and slotted it for mid-season with the title The Frankenstein Code. Later that summer, they changed the title to Looking Glass before finally settling on the title Second Chance. One month before its premiere online and on demand, so that would be November because it premiered online and on demand on December 25th. But it premiered on January 13th, 2016 on TV. Right. So this is what I want to mention. This officially is the first show we've covered. That started in 2016. That online on-demand premiere basically testing the waters for release in January. And by the way, they did make a couple other changes to the uh, show proper. The setting was changed from Los Angeles to Seattle in line with that area being home to your regular average tech billionaires. And also to account for the fact that most of the show was shot in Canada. A. Because that's how you make money 
in 2016. You shoot your sitcoms in Los Angeles, and you shoot your procedural dramas in Canada. What do you need to save on if you're shooting in Canada, Jimmy Walker? Money! Let's talk about who had their chance on Second Chance. Playing Jimmy Pritchard, the 75-year-old trapped in a 35-year-old's body, is Robert Kaczynski. He's a British actor who is known for being Chuck Hansen in Pacific Rim. He was also the Don, a biker in Captain Marvel, and Orgrim in Warcraft. Robert Kaczynski, doesn't he coach the Cleveland Browns, Mike? That's Kevin Stefanski, you knucklehead. Or are you talking about former Browns coach Rob Chudzinski? But he would spend the lion's share of his career in 264 episodes of EastEnders. Playing the twins, Otto and Mary Goodwin, are Adir Kalyan and Deshad Vatsaria. Adir Kalyan, you'd remember him as the Indian fellow on later seasons of Rules of Engagement who functioned as David Spade's best, some would argue his only friend, but he was also in the United States of Al as Al. I remember that somewhat. We may cover it in a future entry. Who knows? Dilshad Vatsaria, you'd remember her for 74 episodes of Greek as Rebecca Logan. She was also in eight episodes of Cloak and Dagger as Leah Dewan. And when we say Cloak and Dagger, we mean the Marvel series on Freeform, not the movie with Henry Thomas and Dabney Coleman. Damn, I'm disappointed now. You know how much I love that movie. I loved it as a kid. Playing Duval Pritchard, Jimmy's son, an FBI agent, is Tim Decay who is best known for five seasons of White Collar. He was also in Swordfish in 2001, Get Smart in 2008, and he played some sort of federale in both of them. Now hold on a second. You said Swordfish, which, in my opinion, is the absolute best work Halle Berry has ever done. This is not even something you can argue. Thank you very much. I know why. Did I mention he was also in Oppenheimer this year? Oh, Oppenheimer. So this is actually the first time we've ever mentioned either Barbie or Oppenheimer on this podcast. And if I have my way, it's going to be the last time we mention Barbie. Not or Oppenheimer. I want to talk about Oppenheimer. But Barbie, no. We're not going to talk about Barbie again. Over my dead body. I shouldn't say that. But still, executive decision made. I'm sorry. Looks like a stupid movie. That's oh the joke. That's not a joke, though. It's, it looks like a stupid movie. Yeah, it is the joke. That's why it's so good, because it's so self-aware. Stupid does not equal self-aware. Just saying. Playing his daughter, that's Duval's daughter, Gracie, and Jimmy's granddaughter, Sierra Bravo. You probably remember her best for her work on Big Time Rush on Nickelodeon 
and any other Nickelodeon project that involves somebody that Jeanette McCurdy refers to as the creator. And we shall refer to him as the creator. Playing Alexa, Mary's assistant, is Vanessa Lenges, a.k.a. that Canadian girl from that thing. Of course, she was in waiting with somebody that we're going to talk about in 2024. That's all I'll say about that. But she was also in American Dreams, the sort of reboot season of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Not the reboot that, you know, aired like, Three or four years ago, but oh, the reboot season of Are You Afraid reboot. of the Dark? Yeah, the reboot season. I remember the reboot season. And she was in 26 episodes of Glee from 2011 to 2015. And, Greg, I finally get to say it on this podcast. She was in future entry Turner and Hooch. Oh, the Disney Plus Turner and Hooch. And rounding out the cast as the voice of Arthur, the computer that the Goodwins work on, Scott Menville. Great actor. He was in Full House. He was in The Parenthood. But you probably remember him best as Robin, the boy wonder on Teen Titans and Teen Titans Go. Now, there are recurring players as well. We have Philip Baker Hall as old Jimmy Pritchard. He was best known for his collaborations with Paul Thomas Anderson. Then we have Amanda Detmer. She played an almost nun in one movie, but I do not remember what that movie is. Adon Kanto as Connor Graff, best known as A.J. Menendez in future entry Blood and Oil. And he also played Sunspot in Days of Future Past from 2014. And Diana Bang, who played Emma Peng. She played Park Sukian in The Interview from 2014. Oh, The Interview. But is better known for roles in The Astronauts, Why the Last Man, and most recently, Resident Alien. What the hell is Resident Alien? It's Alan Tudyk playing an alien who missioned with the... Uh, task of destroying mankind sort of went native. Oh, okay. All you had to do was mention Alan Tudyk, and I must be like, yeah, okay. So let's talk about the wily adventures of this wily pack of science fiction crime scene investigators. Why did I say crime scene investigators? Anyway. Episode 1. A Suitable Donor. Jimmy Pritchard is a 75-year-old former sheriff who was disgraced for fabricating evidence, something he justified as necessary to protect his town, and has a tense relationship with his son Duval, an FBI agent. After being murdered by men who broke into his son's home, he secretly resorts to life, youth, and even given superhuman strength by the genius tech billionaire twins Otto and Mary, the founders of Looking Glass. After realizing what happened to him, he runs away, still under the twins' constant surveillance. When he recognizes one of his murderers as his son's FBI partner, John Strayburn, he goes to warn Duval, but has to return to his tank to stay alive. Mary starts receiving cells from Jimmy to fight her cancer and helps him by compiling evidence about John, which Jimmy hands to Duval the next time he is out of the tank. 
Duval is kidnapped after notifying his corrupt chief about John, and Jimmy is able to save his son just before it's tank time again. Yeah, he has youth and superhuman strength, but he has to spend any time not working in a tank, lest he loses both youth and superhuman strength. Well, that sucks. Hey, you know what else sucks? Who? The special guest we have on this episode, the name guest, I should say, playing himself, Pierce Morgan. That does suck. <laughs> Let me just say, the Sinead O'Connor diss that you had me read, Chico, of Pierce Morgan was the funniest thing I ever read. I was dying while reading that. Episode two. One more notch. Due to the power surge that Marionado caused in bringing Pritchard back to life, two notorious murderers escaped from prison. Oh boy. Still determined that this is his city to protect, Pritchard goes on the hunt for them, and Mary, who believes she's partially responsible for the fugitives' escape, offers assistance. Meanwhile, in order to win Duval's trust, Pritchard tells him they're half-brothers. Yeah, because it's going to be really weird if he tells him, yeah, I'm your dad, but I look the same age as you. No real guest stars, but check out who directed the episode. Oh! Timothy Busfield from 30-something and Future Entry Studios 60 on the Sunset Strip. But remember, let's be honest, he didn't see all those ghosts on the baseball diamond in Field of Dreams. Just walked right in during the middle of a game. Episode 3, From Darkness, The Sun. Pritchard tries to prove to Duval that he was a better police officer and man than his son ever knew. Meanwhile, he and Duval go up against a deadly psycho and another father-son duo that is out to cause trouble. Looking at these episodes, it looks like name guests are few and far between. I'm guessing that the Piers Morgan was, hey, first episode... Let's get him on there. A name person. People will watch. Nope. Episode four. Admissions. A case from the past comes back into play as Pritchard and Duval investigate a series of murders involving young prodigies. As the investigation unravels, Duval comes to terms with the possibility that Pritchard could be his father reincarnated. Episode five. Scratch that glitch. Mary's life is in danger when a Deadpool predicts her death for the same day as an important looking glass product launch. Meanwhile, when Pritchard is needed the most, he fails to show up and winds up in the hospital after a near-fatal brawl. After Pritchard's hospitalization, Otto begins to find glitches in Pritchard's code that might not only drastically change Pritchard, but Mary as well. Ooh. This whole Frankenstein code thing, trying to cure cancer from Mary's side, it looks like. Episode 6, halfway through the series, Palimpsest. A killer that mangles his victims beyond recognition is on the loose. Meanwhile, Otto becomes jealous of the growing bond between Pritchard and his sister and considers finding Another donor. And we do have a name in this episode. 
playing George, somebody we mentioned not that long ago, Francis X. McCarthy. We mentioned him most recently in the Slap Maxwell story, but also he was on an episode of Magruder and Loud. Episode 7, That Time in the Car. Duval's sister is dating Wally, a parole officer whom she's known since high school. Pritchett never liked him and must hide his distrust. However, he and Duval discover Wally is involved in a possible prison break. Playing Wally, Breckenmeyer. You mean future It Was a Thing on TV Hall of Famer Breckenmeyer? I do mean future It Was a Thing on TV Hall of Famer Breckenmeyer. You know, he was almost in previous entry coupling. But he quit, and Chris Moynihan stepped in to his role. Well, that's probably a good thing. Meanwhile, much to the chagrin of Pritchard and Duval, they discover Wally is being coerced by a prisoner to carry out an elaborate prison break and must team up with Wally to stop the prisoner from carrying out his grand plans. And Alexa speaks out to Mary about her distrust of Pritchard and Otto mourns the anniversary of his parents' death. This is where things get really, really real. Or really, really weird. Episode 8. May Old Acquaintance Be Forgot. Pritchard's past comes back to haunt him. 20 years ago, Pritchard covered up a murder committed by a drug lord's girlfriend who happened to be his confidential informant at the time. Instead of staying on the right side of the law after Pritchard helped her elude the crime, 20 years later, she's turned into a major drug lord herself. Didn't see that one coming, did you? couple of names on this episode. A minor name playing a guy named Lenny is Leonard Roberts. He was in Drumline, American Sniper, Savages, and 17 episodes of Heroes. Currently, he can be seen in Disney Plus's slash Hulu's Goosebumps. And playing Joanne Solidar, or Joan Solidar, Madshin Amik. Oh, yes! You want to talk about a low-key Hall of Fame case? There you go. Let's not bury the lead, Chica. She was Shelly on Twin Peaks. Episode 9. When you have to go there, they have to take you in. Pritchard and Duval join forces to track down a serial killer, and Alexa and Connor try to procure key technology from Looking Glass. Meanwhile, the bond between Mary and Pritchard has grown stronger, but Otto goes to great lengths to make sure Mary never leaves him, and Gracie suspects there's more to Pritchard than what he has told her. Francis X. McCarthy returns as George. Episode 10. Geforfenheit. Pritchard and Duval continue to investigate who Albert Lynn really is, who created him, and try to uncover how he's involved in a string of murders. The investigation drives a wedge between Mary and Otto, and Otto has to choose if he will betray Mary and undo everything they have built. Albert Lynn is played by a gentleman by the name of Paul Cheng, a Taiwanese-Canadian actor from that Taiwanese-Canadian thing, but, Greg, you would remember him as Scoutmaster 
Kevin Osaka thug in Deadpool 2. Okay. He is known most notably as a stuntman. And finally, wow, we're to the last episode already. Gelassenheit. Pritchard and Duval race against the clock to save Gracie from Connor and Otto's life-threatening experiment. But time is quickly running out for Pritchard as well, since there's no tank in which he can regenerate. Meanwhile, Mary, with the help of Alexa, does everything she can to try and unlock the code to save Pritchard's life before it's too late. And Otto wrestles with his conscience and the decisions he's made that have changed his life forever. And that's the show, everybody. So, let's ask the question. What happened? Well, the show seemed like it was doomed from the start. Being a mid-season replacement show, Fox only had so much money in the programming coffers, right? Before the first episode ever aired, the order for 13 episodes was reduced by 2 to 11. And according to Nelly Andreeva of Deadline, the network indicated that the move was made due to scheduling needs because Fox had two other sci-fi dramas lined up for the season, Lucifer and a reboot of The X-Files. That's right, I forgot about The X-Files reboot around this time. Now, the show itself, when it aired, it was mid. Metacritic has it as a 47 out of 100 based on 18 reviews, and Rotten Tomatoes has it at a 30% based on 27 with an average rating of 4.2. The consensus reads... Second Chance boasts a few interesting ideas in Robert Kaczynski's game performance, but there aren't enough functioning parts in what's ultimately yet another mediocre take on the Frankenstein myth. The show itself premiered to much fanfare on January 13, 2016 to a 2.9 rating and a 5 share out of American Idol's 5.9 and 10 share, good for fourth behind CBS's Criminal Minds, NBC's Law & Order SBU, and ABC's Modern Family Blackish 1-2. A decent rating to be sure, but perhaps not enough to justify the cost of making the show. The show would air another Wednesday episode to decreased ratings before the network decided to trade places with Hell's Kitchen, moving the show to the Friday 9pm Dead Zone. It's did not fare any better opposite Hawaii Five-0, Shark Tank, or Grimm. And from then, it's only a matter of time before the run-up to the finish line that no self-respecting TV show wants to cross. Fox did not pick up a second season for 2016. Let me add briefly the review of Second Chance on RogerEbert.com. Now, mind you, Roger Ebert did not write this. He would have been deceased at this point. This is written by Brian Tallarico. I'm just going to read the headline. Fox's second chance is depressingly awful. You don't hear that too often regarding TV shows. Depressingly awful. And reading through the review real fast, the writer of this, Mr. Tallarico, mentions it's shocking that a show with so much talent involved in 2016 could be that ineffective, that inept, and that awful. And he mentions... It's one of those projects that one truly hopes gets canceled soon, not to hurt the careers of anyone involved in any way, but so that they can move on to better things. 
That's a damning statement. Cancel the show so people can move on to better things. And I don't think that any of the actors on this show have moved on to better things per the extent of our research. I mean, again, this is a show from 2016, so it's a little too early to tell. It's been eight years almost, though. I mean, the only one to come out of this show with a career so far is Scott Menville. I do have some ratings, not a lot. It's not good. As we mentioned earlier, Fox started the night with American Idol, and then you had Second Chance at 9 o'clock. And looking at the first week, the rating dropped by over half, the share dropped by half, and the number of viewers dropped by more than half. That's not good when the show after your big show loses half of its audience or over half of its audience. And that was on the premiere night. If I go to the second week, the numbers are even worse. When it comes to ratings, American Idol was at a 5.6 and Second Chance took it all the way down to 2.3. In terms of viewers, American Idol had 9.2 million. Second Chance had 3.7. That's atrocious. Again, you're losing more than half what the prior show had. That's ugly. And that's in week two. I don't even want to know how this turned out uh, for like its final episode. The final episode aired on March 25th, and it had 2.09 million viewers watched, which was up from its previous week, but not enough to save the show. And taking a look at the second to last week, the 8 o'clock hour had Sleepy Hollow, and then you had Second Chance. This is amazingly bad when you don't have the American Idol lead in. Sleepy Hollow had a rating of 1.8. Now, remember, we said in week two, American Idol had, what was it? It's like a 5.7 or so, so it had like over triple the numbers. Second Chance, for its second to last episode, had a rating of 1.3. I mean, yeah, that's only a loss of like 35% of viewers in terms of rating points. But 1.3. Ugly. Obviously, people made it known that Second Chance doesn't deserve a second chance. It needed to be gone. People weren't watching it. As I mentioned earlier, it was depressingly awful. Okay, so I actually have the listing here from Deadline. Unfortunately, it counts encores and repeat airings. But of the 197 shows that Deadline has offered for the season, it placed 126th. That's not good. It's right below New Girl and right above Future Entry Grandfathered. And New Girl was like a big show for Fox at this time. Yeah, but it was cheaper to produce. Oh, that's it. And it probably got the adults 18 to 49 demo going for it. Well, Fox did release the show on DVD in 2018. It is on sale right now, but if you, like 
Best Buy can't be bothered with cumbersome physical media, you can purchase the entire series for $10 on Prime Video, YouTube TV, or Apple TV+. Plus. Best $10 you'll ever spend. No, I was going to say, don't spend your money on that. Spend it on something more productive, like, let's say, a video game release that came out in the past couple of days. Take your pick. Super Mario Wonder or Jackbox Party Pack 10. Are we just going to do Spider-Man 2 like that? Since I don't have a PS5 and I have no interest in that series, I'm going to say where my money went. And yours too, because you got Super Mario Brothers Wonder. I did get Super Mario Brothers Wonder, and I did get Spider-Man 2. I'm waiting for the PS5 slim to get it for Christmas. Then I can finally play Spider-Man 2. Nice. Hey, it's got a 4K UHD attachment, the PS5 slim, I see. In 2016, Fox thought they had the next great science fiction crime procedural. But given the benefit of what we know now, all they had after American Idol was another thing on TV named Second Chance. And let's be honest, the 1987 Second Chance was much better than this. What if we were to combine the two? Oh, that'd be great. We could combine the 1987 Second Chance with the 2016 Second Chance. Oh, even better. We can incorporate the 1977 Second Chance into this somehow. So we could, like, work in a quiz show setting with, like... So we have a quiz show setting, and a guy is hosting it, but the producer is himself from... (laughs) From 25 years into the future, who is reanimated after he died. That is way too complicated. Whammy, help me out here. Why are you talking about my rat bastard father who left me for cigarettes back in 1977? (laughs) Oh, that's right. We could get the devil involved in it, too. Uh, The devil already had a shot. Remember uh, that show with that thing? Oh, that's right. We talked about that last week. It did not work then, did it? No. Actually, I was referring to a year at the top, but yeah, that works too. Wow! Hey guys, you know what I think might have saved this TV show? What would that be? If after that 11th episode, they renamed it Boys Will Be Boys and brought it back. Episode 422, Submission 2444, the ESPN Halloween Derby. The ESPN Halloween Derby occurred at halftime of a Monday night football game between New England and Minnesota on the night of October 30th, 
2006. Well, Mike, you like mascots, right? Who doesn't like mascots? Oh, we all love mascots here. It it was the thing on TV. You know, we all love Gritty at this podcast. We all think he's like the best. Gritty. um, We love the Philly Fanatic. Mr. Met, obviously. Absolutely, Mr. Met. Uh, I think some of us have a certain love for Slider. Oh, yeah. To, to a point. What's the deal with Slider? He has an origin story, but I don't know the background of the origin story. Well, you know, I have respect for one mascot in your area, Sir CC, or as his formal name, Sir Cleveland Cavalier. I know you like Sir CC. I love a buff mascot. But yeah, if you look at sports, I don't want to say any good team has a mascot. Now, obviously, there are certain teams that maybe a mascot wouldn't be necessarily appropriate for. I mean, I'm thinking like certain football teams. Uh, There's not really a mascot for like, let's say, the Tennessee Titans. There's not a mascot for... I don't think the Buffalo Bills have one. No, the Jets and the Giants don't have a mascot. And even some mascots are borderline creepy. Go back to last year, uh, at least when Greg and I and Chico talked about this mascot, the Jacksonville Jaguars kind of half-human, half-Jaguar atrocity that only wore like a pair of Speedos. If even that, it might have been even more revealing than Speedos, but if you've seen that mascot, you definitely haven't unseen that mascot. But last week, we also did shit on Blooper. And deservedly so? Oh, it's a terrible mascot. For a, I don't want to say terrible team, but yeah, an antiquated team, let's say that, with an antiquated name. And an antiquated hand motion, an animated hand signal. Yeah, we can't. Yeah, it's 2023. We got to get rid of that. Don't want to sound like somebody woke, but it's like the Cleveland team came to their senses. And yeah, I know that I hear a lot of stuff from people saying, oh, they're still the Indians. They're still the Indians. It's like, no, they're the Guardians now. They dropped the Indians name in 2021. Get with the times. And actually, I got kicked from a a trading card group, a baseball card group in Cleveland, because the owner of the group or the the admin of the group said, yeah, he was talking about the Cleveland Indians. And I said, you know, they've been called the Guardians for over two years and not joking within like five minutes of posting it, didn't even comment, just booted me and blocked me and I don't want to surprise you, Greg, but I found his profile on Twitter, and he's a mega boomer. Oh, what a shocker. I know. I didn't want to surprise you, but it's like, just when all this happens, like, okay, he's got to be a boomer. He's got to be mega. And I searched his name on Twitter. Well, I think it was Twitter at that time. It wasn't even X. Well, hold on a second. Yeah. Let me tie it into today, since this is Ohio. Did he ever vote for Jim Jordan? Is he in his district? I don't know where he lived. Um, It was a Cleveland area group. 
and the extreme west part of the greater Cleveland area is Jim Jordan territory. Jim Jordan basically has like everything from Lorraine, which is like 25, 30 miles west of Cleveland, all the way to like Toledo and maybe even like the Indiana border. He has a huge swath in the state of Ohio. That's what gerrymandering will do. Well, that's exactly it. It's horribly gerrymandered, but at the same time, Toledo is a very blue city. Well, as you said, what they could have done is they could have gerrymandered it to pieces and parts. And, okay, this part is Republican, but the inner city of Toledo is Democrat. And actually, I think Marcy Capture, I think she is the uh, representative for Toledo. But yeah, Jim Jordan has this amazingly huge area, uh, almost obscene how big it is. Boy, a Republican bragging about their size. I'm shocked. All right, but we're not here to talk about Cleveland area politics. No, we're here to talk about this particular episode on Monday Night Football. Now, this was brought to our attention last year on YouTube by Jaguar Gator not on YouTube. He did a video about this whole thing, and we were fascinated by how this happened. So, okay, we love mascots. Now, one of the great things about mascots that they do at certain parts of stadiums is they have races. Like, the Milwaukee Brewers have had the sausage races for years. Yeah, uh, Washington, the uh, Nationals, they have the president race. Pittsburgh has the pierogi race. And here in Cleveland, we have hot dog races. Oh, yeah. Did one of the hot dogs get demoted? It was not this year. It was last year uh, when the uh, Guardians were on a road trip. They demoted, oh, I want to say mustard because ketchup always wins. And I hate that jackass. And onion wins occasionally, I think, because they don't want it to look like they're being sort of misogynistic because onion is female. So mustard got demoted to Lake County for a series. And then they brought him back when the Guardians returned, coincidentally. Has he won any races since he got demoted? He won the last race at the last home game in 2022. Oh, good for him. I can't speak for anything in 2023 because I didn't go to any games in 2023, and they don't show it on TV. But he did win the last race of 2022, so he did get a little bit of very silent victory there. Okay, that's good. All right. So, let's go back in time. It's 2006. It's a Monday night game on October 30th, the night before Halloween between New England and Minnesota. And... This is the first year of Monday Night Football on ESPN. Because remember, it was on ABC forever and ever, and then they switched to ESPN when NBC got Sunday Night Football, and ABC was like, we don't want to have our time wasted on Monday nights anymore. Which really is funny, because now in 2023, ABC's like, well... We got no programming because of the strike. I guess we'll put Monday Night Football back on. I'm trying to remember. So the first year of Monday Night Football on ESPN, our commentary booth was Mike Tirico, 
Joe Theismann and Tony Kornheiser. Do you remember anything about that booth, Mike? To be honest, I really didn't watch much Monday Night Football at that point. Okay. And on the studio end of things, you had Chris Bourbon with Tom Jackson, because you got to have Chris Bourbon with Tom Jackson. Oh, absolutely. It would be a crime if they weren't together. And also you had Steve Young and Michael Irvin at that time helping them out on the Monday Night Countdown show. Now, for halftime, you got to think that they had something special brewing because ESPN was teasing, we got something special lined up for this game between New England and Minnesota because we obviously know it's Halloween and we want to get the kids like interested in this game after they get bored stiff because, shocker, New England handily beat Minnesota in this game because I'm looking at the box score here. The final score was 31-7. So, Mike, what do you think is going to get the kids interested in this game at halftime to keep them interested? Well, Minnesota played New England, so clearly the kids want to see Tom Brady. No, that's the wrong answer. No kid wants to see Tom Brady outside of New England. Okay, given what we know now, yes, that's not necessarily a great answer. What else would keep kids entertained? If this was like the Nickelodeon game, say, 15 years earlier, that would entertain the kids. Yeah. Having SpongeBob and pouring slime and and Disney ripping off the whole idea with Toy Story. Oh, we're going to be talking about the Toy Story game in the year in review show. Oh, you better believe we are. I will say the one highlight, though, was that Duke Kaboom halftime show. That was the greatest halftime show of all time. But okay, Mike, I want you to get ready for this. This is what ESPN had ready for us, okay? Here we go. Well, coming up at halftime, in honor of Halloween, lucky people have been pulled from the stands. They will be in the ESPN Halloween Derby. It's Kornheiser, me, Tyson, Berman, Steve Young, Michael Irvin, Tom Jack. They did the best job on Tom. Great style. Okay. Let's describe for our audience what we're seeing on Zoom. I think they can best be described as partially like Christmas parade floats, partially mascots like we talked about earlier, but like with really big heads. And actually, I told Greg before we started recording, the one thing they kind of remind me of, and this might be a little bit of a a deep cut, is on Takeshi's Castle slash MXC, occasionally you had the people who played Kenny Blankenship and Vic Romano wearing these big, like, paper mache heads. I mean, these are much bigger than that, but that's what they sort of remind me of. And they've got big gaping mouths. Their mouths are all wide open, sort of smiling. The former football players are wearing helmets, but not necessarily authentic helmets, and Greg will say why. Okay, well, it makes sense for one of the guys. That's why I said most of them. Most of them, it does not make sense. But there is one that it makes sense for. Joe Theismann is wearing a single-bar helmet, which makes sense because when Joe Theismann played in the NFL for Washington, he wore a single-bar helmet. 
And I don't think there were many like position players outside of kickers that wore single bar helmets. Like the only one I can think of is maybe Don Maynard when he was with the Jets wore a single bar helmet. That's it. And Thiesman. Yeah, it was primarily your special teamers that wore them. And uh, even when they made the multi-bar helmets a thing, the people who were in the league before them were grandfathered in. So if Theismann was playing till, let's say, hypothetically 2006, even though that's impossible, Theismann could have worn a single-bar helmet. But Steve Young, Michael Irvin, and Tom Jackson, they all have single-bar helmets. That does not make any sense. I'm kind of surprised that Tom Jackson didn't start in the era with the single bar helmets because he would have started mid seventies. Yeah, I would think so. Cause he was on the Broncos like Super Bowl 21 team at the end of his career. Wasn't he? He was on a bunch of decent teams for the Broncos. So I wonder how much time there was between Tom Jackson debuting and the introduction of the standard helmet we use nowadays because Theismann, he would have started 71, I believe. So I got to figure that Tom Jackson, he probably started around 75. So uh, Wiki uh, says he was a fourth round pick by the Broncos in 73. Okay. You see, that makes it even weirder now because again, if Theismann started in 71, which I believe he did. No, he was in the CFL with Toronto and then went to Washington in 74. Okay, now this gets even weirder because, as you said, he started in 74 and Tom Jackson got drafted in 73. Isn't the single bar helmet more appropriate for Tom Jackson? Well, I, I get that in 71. He played uh, in the CFL. Uh, maybe there's just too many variables at play here. So I found something here. Do you want to describe what I just found? This must have been somewhere in the Minnesota Stadium, not on the field, but in the storage areas or whatnot. And it's somebody wearing the Tom Jackson helmet running. He's got his hands up in the air, all excited. So actually, I think that tells us how big these heads were. And they're like, again, the Vic Romano, Kenny Blankenship, you know, just like paper mache head coverings. Oh, look, there's an ad for Borat. Very nice. Oh, look. Oh, look, there's an ad for Circuit City. Because, Mike, Circuit City, that's going to be around forever. That's what I thought. I loved Circuit City. Oh, well, hold on a second. We're going to be back after this Circuit City commercial. It's, uh, Joe Theismann there. Wow. Hi there. How are you? That is Tom sweet. Joe Theismann looks like the Noid. Coming up, uh, also Chris. <laughs> I love the Tony Kornheiser one. He's just like raising his hands like, yeah. He's like raising the roof, everybody. I like how they accurately captured Tony Kornheiser's mustache right here. Oh, the mustache and the teeth look great. If only we had a run-in during this race from a Wilbon mascot. Now, you see, that would have been something. 
the Wilbon mascot going against the Kornheiser. I see him walking on the field here. I found on Wikipedia, since we're talking about the single bar masks, they were not officially banned in professional football until 2004, with the remaining players still using them, allowed to continue wearing them under a grandfather clause, like I mentioned earlier. And the last person to wear one was Scott Player in 2009. Oh, Scott Player. That's a blast from the past. So, you know what? Technically, every single one of those mascots who played in the NFL is actually era-appropriate. I mean, yes, it looks kind of weird because you don't see single-bar masks on players outside of, like, the 70s, outside of, again, your punters and your kickers. But it wasn't made uh, illegal, or, or rather, I should say, the cage mask wasn't the norm until 2004. Now, well, look, we got some Vikings fans in the crowd wearing some Halloween outfits. We got this one guy here in the crowd that's dressed up like Elvis. Oh, I wonder, do you think Jerry Glanville left him some tickets for this game? Get out of my head. Get out of my head. I was going to say the same thing. Jerry Glanville must have left some tickets for him. Not a love love for Jerry Glanville on this podcast. Oh, I love Jerry Glanville. We just don't mention him at all because really in the grand scheme of things, uh, from a television perspective, he did what? Three years for Fox coverage back in the mid-90s? Yeah, and I think he did like maybe one or two years at the NFL today at CBS. Yeah, he sort of, I don't want to say slid into obscurity but that's kind of sort of what happened he was such a great coach uh, uh definitely has great personality when he was with atlanta and then he got fired from atlanta went to fox again for three years and then uh, uh like you said he went over to uh, cbs for a couple of years and then uh he did pop up in the xfl i believe you said yeah 2020 xfl he's the defensive coordinator for the vipers in tampa bay Let's have Chris introduce us to this amazing event that we're about to witness. Hello once again, everybody. Halloween is tomorrow, and nothing could be scarier than this. The ESPN Halloween Derby. Not exactly the Boston Marathon. So let's send it to Vikings radio announcer, Paul Allen. Oh, wait, they're going to have Paul Allen do the PA for this? That's terrific. Paul Allen, probably like the biggest homer announcer in the NFL. Paul Allen is so bad, he makes Hawk Harrelson look professional. Oh my gosh. I said it. I'm not disagreeing with you. That's a bold statement. Get back, Here it is. The season's on the line. Two receivers left and right. McCown takes the snap. He steps up. He's all by himself, fires into the end zone, caught, touchdown, no, no, the Cardinals have knocked the Vikings out of the playoffs. He's so bad he makes Jack Edwards from the Boston Bruins look like a total pro. Dang. I I hate Jack Edwards. He's the biggest prick I've ever heard announced. 
I hated him even back when he was on Sports Center. Oh, that Jack Edwards. Okay. Yeah. I, I know who you're talking about now. Okay. Oh, what a tool bag that guy is. Yeah, he looked like a tool bag when he was at the ESPN back in the day. Are you petting Benoodles? No, I, I'm, I'm actually. I've got uh, 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 a chick. Uh, I'm sorry, a Chinese dinner here. I'm stirring the rice to, to 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 break it up so it's not like all hot. Oh, good. And that's your behind the veil look of the podcast this week. What is Mike doing? He's mixing up his microwaved uh, 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 orange chicken dinner. Well, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to go to Applebee's and get some half-priced apps for the folks out of town for the weekend. So, nothing like half-priced apps at Applebee's. But okay, Paul, let's introduce the competitors. Welcome to the ESPN Halloween Derby. Let's meet the contestants. The host of Monday Night Countdown, Chris Berman. Former Dallas Cowboys wide receiver, Michael Irvin. Boeing. Former Denver Broncos linebacker, Tom Jackson. Monday night football commentator, Tony Kornheiser. Former Washington Redskins quarterback, Joe Theismann. The play-by-play voice of Monday Night Football, Mike <laughs> Tirico. And the Hall of Fame quarterback from the San Francisco 49ers, Steve Young. Did the Steve it's Young the... one just do the throat slash? I think he did, yes. <laughs> All the booing, though. Yeah, I get some of the booing. For Michael Irvin, yeah, he was a bit of a polarizing figure. The only person I heard applause for or cheering was Mike Tirico. Hey, Minnesota loves their Mike Tirico. Oh, yeah, all the people in Minnesota, they love Mike Tirico. They all watch Sunday Night Football for Mike Tirico. But it's so nice of the Vikings to provide their cheerleaders to show some support. Well, remember, they're in a dome now. They weren't in a dome for a while, so do you really want cheerleaders in a football environment where, again, in Minnesota, it's cold, it's snowy? You don't have a lot of cheerleaders doing that. I think Buffalo is one of the few northern teams that has cheerleaders like that. Ah, the Jets have some cheerleaders. It's not Buffalo cold and snowy, though. Uh, Yeah, you're right, but it's still northeast. Valid point. ESPN Halloween Derby. All the racers get to the starting line. On your mark. Hold on. Hold on a second. I got a question. Do you think that if this was 2023, that Chargers fan would be cheering on all the competitors? I'm thinking. I don't think there's anybody who ever played with San Diego or uh, the Chargers, I should say, since they've been in Los Angeles for a number of years. I don't think there's anybody on national broadcast who played for the chargers so unless you had like uh steve young in a justin herbert jersey i don't think she'd be all that excited i don't know maybe i think she's cheering for berman 
before we start this race, who do you have to win this? In an ironic twist, Joe Theismann, even though he absolutely butchered his knee in Monday Night Football back in 86 or 87. Uh, well, I'm going to go with Tariko on this. He probably learned a lot of racing from Syracuse on how to like run a race. And he's a crowd favorite. You heard the cheering for him. That's right. All right, here we go. The ESPN Halloween Derby. Get set and go. And they're racing in the Halloween oh. Derby. And Mike Tirico in silky smooth fashion comes out beautifully. But it's the Hall of Famer Steve Young taking the lead at the 30. Chris Berman is back, 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 back of the pack. He's about 10 yards from the lead. Then it's Tom Jackson, Joe Theismann, Tony Kornheiser. Come on, Mike. Fire, and the playmaker Michael Irvin's far out of it. Mike Tirico Come on, Tirico. You got Oh, my God. But he stumbled. And Steve Young has taken the lead. Tom Jackson with a late charge. But Steve Young. Is the Holy oh, God. champion! <laughs> Hold on a second. I think the Steve Young just pulled a Shockmaster while diving in the end zone. He was channeling the spirit of Uncle Fred. I, I was thinking something else because it looked like he lost his head there. And then, just like after he hit the ground, he put the head back on. <laughs> That's exactly what he did. But the Mike Tarika one, he tripped. Like, I'm going to replay it right now. <laughs> and all of oh, typical, the Tony Kornheiser mascot, he's dead last. That's exactly what would happen if it was the real Tony Kornheiser in this race. Well, they said Michael Irvin and, and Kornheiser were in the back of the pack. But, uh, yes, uh, the uh, Tarika falling, but all... <laughs> <laughs> His glasses fell off too. Not just that, but I noticed on their first lap. Now, we should paint a picture for the audience. So, what these mascots did was they started at the goal line, ran to the 50, and then ran back to the goal line. So, they went 100 yards. But if you watch Tariko, he starts. Holding his teeth like his dentures are going to fall out. He's holding it as he runs down the... Uh, and even Steve Young there did the same thing. Holding it... And look, Chris right Bur there! What are, they're all putting their fingers in their mouths to keep their helmets on or to make sure their teeth don't fall out. And down goes Tariko. And his glasses are way off his head. Steve Young is the Halloween Derby champion! And there he is, you know, putting his he uh, helmet back on his head. Here is ESPN Monday Night Countdown co-host Steve Young. Congratulations to Rick Hoffman from St. Louis Park. And that is the Halloween <laughs> Derby. Can we describe this dance for the listeners? That is the whitest dance I've ever seen. I mean, seriously, Steve Young, BYU product, relative of Brigham Young, that's the whitest dance I've ever seen. That must be, like, really popular in Utah. Well, remember when Zach Wilson did the gritty last year against the Steelers? Jeez. Oh, yes. He can't just fade away to obscurity. No, Aaron Rodgers has to get injured. Well, that's not a bad thing. 
But oh my gosh. Well, in fairness, at the time we're recording the last three weeks, he has played decent. He hasn't turned the ball over. He hasn't done anything stupid. And he's got the team at three and three. Yeah. I don't know if it was mentioned on this, but did the Derby race winner get anything? I mean, his name got mentioned there as to who was under the helmet, who was the actual winner. But was there anything besides just pride being given away? Probably just pride. He should have gotten like a giant ass trophy for winning this. At least because they got fans to do this. They should have just ESPN given him like a big ass trophy or something for winning this. Oh, even better. And I'm sure ESPN could easily create this or has this in Bristol back in 2006. Just get like a mini football helmet with the ESPN logo on it and get all four of them to sign it. Because you got Chris Berman, who's probably in some sort of Hall of Fame as an announcer. And Steve Young's a Hall of Famer. Michael Irvin's a Hall of Famer. Tom Jackson, not a Hall of Famer, but a legend in Denver. That would be a cool memento. Yeah. All right, Steve has something to say because he's the real Steve. He's got his finger up like, what the hell did I just watch? Thank you very much. Thank you always you. were a good yeah. scrambler, weren't you? Uh, how, how, how can I lose to Tarico? <laughs> well, you don't want to lose. And here they are, I, Steve. I, would, I couldn't have gone home. Uh, and here we are. Okay, let's paint this picture for the audio listeners. Okay, this should be the cover art if it's not. I know Chico did the cover art. I'm just adding that. So now the four hosts of Monday Night Football, Chris Berman, Steve Young, and uh, Michael Irvin and Tom Jackson, their big head Halloween Derby counterparts have come behind them. This is the fuel of nightmares. I could have gone home. Oh, and here we are. Seth life. <laughs> Imitation oh, is the <laughs> life here, huh? The promotion of it all. All our rowdy friends are here on Monday night. Do what I got to have. Good job, guys. Do harder, Steve. You're a Hall of Famer, and now this. Uh, uh, I don't know what to say, really, Boomer. I, uh, yeah, I've had some great days here at the Metrodome. This might be the best of all. However, <laughs> you know who's having a good day? That Tom, there you are. A handsome man. <laughs> you played linebacker with a single bar? I didn't know that. Oh, man. See, even Chris is questioning the accuracy of these helmets. It's not just us. Doing a quick search on Google, I do not see any images of Tom Jackson wearing a one-bar helmet. Oh, now, admittedly, I'm not looking at specific dates, and, and there's a lot of uh, football cards, but I do not see anything that looks like a single bar helmet. That's a shame. Well, Mike, what do you have to say about this ESPN Halloween Derby? Why couldn't they do it again? I mean, I know it's been 17 years since they did this. It was a one-time thing. And I think the kids nowadays, they'd like to see a Joe Buck costumed head and uh, a Troy Aikman costumed head. Or an Adam Schefter costumed head. Anything like that. Absolutely. 
for 2026 for the 20th anniversary, we need to have the second ESPN Halloween Derby. Yeah, good luck with that. And the thing is, they could just get the old heads out of storage if they still have them. Because I'm going to presume in three years, Kornheiser will still be there. And yeah, Tariko moved on to Sunday Night Football. Berman is still there in some capacity. I think he does just uh, primetime now or whatever's remaining of primetime. He does the halftime highlights still. Okay. There's one change. It's it's not an addition per se, but I think you could do some clever readjusting of the Mike Tirico head and you can get Michael Wilbon. Oh, I got one great addition here. Booger. My gosh. And the thing is with Booger, they could like build some sort of like apparatus that looks like the cart that wheeled him around on the sideline. They could build it as part of the costume. Just like, again, it was like a, a fire ladder attached to like wheels. They could just like build that out of like cardboard just to make it authentic. And then even better, Greg, the Derby could have little tombstones of everybody who used to do Monday Night Football. So you have a tombstone for um, Jason Witten. You could have a tombstone for Joe Tessitore. Yeah, just think of the possibilities. Oh, look, there's a Dennis Miller. And, oh, my gosh, you know, there's a tombstone of Booger and then a tombstone of Booger's Booger Mobile. And there's a tombstone of John Gruden's coaching career. And I think there's also going to be one of Mike Mayock's career. Even though he didn't work for ESPN, but well, name, it's the Raiders. It, it's yeah, it, it's it's open season on the Raiders at any time because they're such a crap organization. Who doesn't love Josh McDaniels kicking those field goals at the worst times, huh? Hey, just remember, Chandler Jones leveled Mac Jones on the final play in a game last year. And where's Chandler Jones now? Oh, here's an amazing revelation I just found out while re-watching that clip last week. Do you know who threw that lateral on New England to Chandler Jones that led to that moment? Who was that? Jacoby Myers. Oh, that's very interesting, given where Jacoby Myers plays now. Yes. Maybe he was, like, doing that in advance because he knew he was going to Vegas next year. Might as well, oh, I'm going to gift you a win, guys. Here you go, Chandler. Just get me away from this Mac Jones person. He sucks so badly. And Bilashek is such a douche. You know, now that it's okay to piss on Bill Belichick's grave now in New England, because we all know he's probably done after this year, it's so great seeing it end like this. It's, oh, it's so, beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, it's so great to see it end like this. Of course, the joke's going to be on us when he goes to like the Chargers or the Titans next year. But mm, I don't know if he's going to necessarily coach anymore because he's getting up there in age. Yeah, but I think he also wants to get that Shula record because, of course, he does. Yeah, seventy-one years old. Well, and actually, if he was to go anywhere, I think definitely the Chargers would be a really good fit because they have that good quarterback. 
not implying that Tom Brady was a good quarterback, mind you. We're pretty much done with this. So the ESPN Halloween Derby in 2006, right before Halloween, ESPN in their first year of Monday Night Football gave us this hilarious and really stupid thing on TV. But it was a great thing on TV for us for comedy in 2023. It was memorable. Absolutely. That's going to do it for this episode. But remember, you can always go to our website over at itwasthethingontv.com where you can listen to the 421 episodes that precede this episode. And we've got all sorts of great bonuses there, including mini-sodes, live shows, extended versions of previous episodes. We got everything at that website. And remember, we are on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon over at It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was A Thing On TV Podcast. And you can subscribe to this podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed. You've heard Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeart, Audible, etc. And don't forget we are on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit the notification bell on YouTube to be informed of all future uploads on this channel, including what's coming up on the podcast next time. Well, Mike, Halloween is over. But we're going to be starting a special month relating to the 60th anniversary of a particular television program that's coming up and a big anniversary is coming up also for this show with the return of maybe one of the most beloved actors to ever step foot on this show and this is a show that is beloved around these parts yes not only here but across the pond where it originated and all over the world oh i meant on the podcast oh on this podcast yeah yeah, I know how much you love it. Chico loves it. Me, not as much as you guys love it, but I still enjoy it. That's right, folks. We are going to have a special month devoted to the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. And we will be starting with, well, we mentioned this person teased him. Well, what happens when he stars in a American version of a show that he did in England? And then what happens when we go to class? Huh? Are we going to the head of the class? No, wait, that was a couple weeks ago. I just hope we're not going to visit roomies at this point. R.I.P. Burt Young. I'll tell you this. It was no class holes. And it wasn't that episode of Futurama where Fry bunks with a monkey. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. I hear the laughter. Yeah. Well, you'll find more about those in our next installments of It Was a Thing on TV. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here with more stuff next week. Wow! Well, Mike, to honor Steve Young's victory in the ESPN Halloween Derby, I figured I might as well show a particular moment against the Vikings by Steve Young, reenacted by someone that's very special to us. 
The king is going all out, bringing the new 36-piece BK chicken fries box to your big old pigskin party. 36 chicken fries. Wow. But I got to say, that king, what hustle by him. The king sort of did the Steve Young dive into the end zone there. Oh, yeah. It was glorious. King 